welcome to those in the sanctuary and joining us online as well. As you saw, next week we're going to be launching into a year-long exploration of the book of Luke. Stay tuned. It's going to be wonderful. But today we're finishing up the book of Genesis in our Ancestry.Church series. So if you'd like to use a Bible this morning, our ushers are going to be coming up the aisles with Bibles that you can use today. When you're done with them at the end of the day, you can return them in the back of the room. As Pastor Steve taught us last week, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham that had three different parts. He was promised land, many descendants, and that he would be blessed to be a blessing to the world. And in the beginning of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah's story shows the beginning of the promise of the land being fulfilled. And then in the middle, Isaac and Jacob's story developed the descendants part of the promise with the 12 tribes of Israel. And now in Joseph's story, we start to see the beginning of how God's people actually begin to be a blessing to the world as Joseph is placed right where he needs to be to save the world from famine. But this story of Joseph is only the beginning of how God will bless the world through this family because it's through this family that Jesus is born into the world. And Jesus is where all this story of the promise is leading that God would send his son to the world to open up God's blessing, love, and redeeming to all the world through Jesus' death and resurrection for us, for all those who will come to him. But these old covenant stories are not just placeholders until Jesus comes, because they show us God's heart. They show us how God works in human lives and human beings like us. So today I'm going to walk you through three different people's journeys in these stories, Joseph's, Judah's, And then through Jesus, hopefully, yours. So let's start with Joseph. To catch us up from last week, Joseph was Jacob's son, born to Jacob in his old age, the oldest of two sons born to Rachel, who Jacob loved. But Jacob also had six other sons through his first wife, Leah, and two by Rachel's servant and two more by Leah's servant, which of course led to a huge mess of complicated relationships. But in all of that family, Jacob loved Joseph the most, which led to a pretty spoiled kid. And as we saw last week, at this particular point in his life, 70-year-old Joseph was a bit lacking in humility and tact, or maybe just emotional maturity, that led him to kind of rub in the faces of his already jealous brothers the dreams that God had given him that one day he was going to rule over them. Now, Joseph wasn't wrong about those dreams, but there are times and places to share those kind of things, right? And this was the last straw for his brothers. They're so jealous, they want to kill him. But instead, they end up selling Joseph into slavery. So Joseph becomes a slave, but God is with him. And soon the slave master likes Joseph so much that he puts him in charge of the entire household. And despite this horrible situation, Joseph knows that God is with him, and he wants to be faithful to God, so he refuses the inappropriate suggestions that are made to him by his slave master's wife, which leads her in anger to falsely accuse him of attacking her just to get him thrown in jail, which he is. So Joseph does the right thing. He does the moral thing, and he's punished for it. That's not fair. But... The story isn't over. God is still with him in jail, and the jailers end up admiring Joseph so much, they put him in charge of the jail, all the things at the jail. He's like first inmate. 
And in jail, Joseph is asked to interpret dreams for people, which he does because God gives him that ability. And it's that ability that eventually puts him in front of Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream that God is giving him. That God is telling him through these dreams, there's going to be seven good years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So they're going to have to store up the extra grain to feed all the nations. And Pharaoh hears Joseph tell him about this and gives him the job as second in command of all of Egypt to get this done. So Joseph goes from prisoner to prince. It's a pretty incredible uh, road to the top. And we might think it's quick, but it's really not. Because Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery, and that doesn't happen until he's 30. So he spends 13 years of his life either as a slave or a prisoner. Can you imagine? How did he keep his faith? How did he keep heart in those times? Well, honestly, I think that's why God gave him those dreams. Because God knew that he would need something to hold on to, something to hope in through those dark times. He was going to need to know that God is in charge and that there is a better future for him than this. And we can see that in Joseph, that when he had no one and nothing, he turned to God. And those dark days developed in him a trust and a humility and a compassion that just hadn't been there before. And by the end of this story, he saw that God had been faithful. God had been working all along to fulfill that dream that he had given Joseph. But Joseph had trusted in God even when it didn't seem to make sense. And he saw that God is faithful. And in his new life that he's given, Joseph marries and he has two sons. He names the first one Manasseh, which sounds like forget, saying, God has made me forget my troubles. And the second one, Ephraim, which sounds like fruitful, to celebrate God's blessing in this new life. And now the story could have ended right there. Joseph trusted God. God helped him the end. It would have been a really nice story. But what God is teaching us isn't just about our faithfulness and his blessing. This is also a story that's about redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness. Because Joseph could say he'd just forgotten the past and moved on, but really, had he? I mean, somewhere out in the world, there are brothers who had betrayed him, and there was a father who he loved, who I'm sure he remembered every single time he looked at his own kids. The story isn't over yet, and it comes full circle when during the famine, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get food. So can you imagine for a moment being Joseph in this situation? It's a normal day overseeing disbursements of food when suddenly the 10 brothers who sold you into slavery, almost murdered you, left you for dead, are now here asking for a handout from you without even recognizing who you are. What would you be feeling? Joseph is so thrown in this moment, he kind of stalls for time by calling them spies. And they stumble around and, and tell him that they have a father and a younger brother still at home. So Joseph learns that his dad and younger brother, the only brother who didn't betray him since he'd been a toddler at the time, are still alive and well. And you can imagine how he wants to see Benjamin. He might even really be worried about his little brother's safety living with these guys. And so he comes up with a plan. He says, to prove to me that you're not spies, bring your younger brother and come back here. And so the brothers go and they tell their father about this demand, but Jacob refuses. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin, but then as the famine gets worse, eventually he gives in and Benjamin goes with his brothers back to Egypt. 
And when in Genesis 43, Joseph saw his brother Benjamin, he gets so emotional, he has to excuse himself from the room to cry and then wash his face and compose himself before going back to join them because I'm sure Benjamin reminded him of his mother and his father and probably of himself before all this bad stuff had happened to him. And looking at the situation, he knows he has got to get Benjamin away from those brothers. So he comes up with a plan to frame Benjamin as a thief That way, he'd have every right to keep Benjamin and send the rest of them away. And if nothing had changed from the time Joseph was a kid, that plan would have totally worked. Because the same brothers who'd sell Joseph out of jealousy would totally ditch Benjamin in a hot second to get themselves out of trouble, right? So Joseph has his servants hide a silver cup in Benjamin's bag, and then in Genesis 44, sends his servants to catch up with a caravan and accuse one of them of stealing it. And the brothers are so offended by this. They say, if one of us has it, that brother will die and all the rest of us will become your slaves. And the servant says, very well, it'll be as you say. Whoever has it will become my slave and the rest of you can go. I said, that's not what we said, but that's what Joseph wants. What he wants is to keep the good brother and throw out the rest as a lost cause. And that might have been what had happened. But instead, this is where suddenly Joseph sees what the text up to this is showing us, that through these years of grief and struggle, God hasn't only been working on Joseph, he's been working on Judah too. So now we have to go back again to the beginning of our story and this time take a look at a different character, the fourth son of the unloved first wife, a brother named Judah. So when Joseph's brothers decide that they're going to kill him, the oldest son, Reuben, stops them and makes them just throw him into a pit. And he said, I'll come back. We'll talk about this. We'll figure out what we're going to do. And if they had taken a moment to come to their senses right there, this story would have gone very differently. But instead, in his anger, it's Judah who sees the Ishmaelites passing by and suggests they sell Joseph instead and get a profit for themselves. So in that rash moment, Judah sells his brother and pockets the coins. But then after that initial rush of vindication comes crushing regret as Judah watches watches his father sobbing in grief. Can you imagine for a moment, how would it feel to be Judah? For it to suddenly dawn on you, your brother is never coming back. And you did this, and you can't take it back. And you can't even come clean and confess because your brothers would kill you. And you can't make it right. Can you imagine how heavy those coins would feel in your pocket? He had sold Joseph into slavery, but that action put Judah in a prison of guilt. And I don't think it's a coincidence that chapter 37 ends with Jacob grieving for Joseph, and chapter 38 starts by saying, at that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Judah couldn't face what he'd done. He had to get out of there. And his life elsewhere wasn't very easy either. Judah married and had a couple of sons who died as young adults. And then Judah's wife died young too. And then after the death of his first son, Judah, according to the traditions of his day, was supposed to take Tamar, his son's widow, into the family, either as the wife of one of his other sons or as his own wife to provide a future for her. But he didn't because he considered her to be bad luck. 
So because women weren't allowed to have jobs or own property, the only options she had to survive would be to marry into a family or become a prostitute. And since the family that she is supposed to marry into wasn't having her, she was really stuck. Until finally, in desperation, Tamar tricks Judah into his obligation to her. And before he had all of the facts, the way Judah first wanted to react to this was to have Tamar killed. Get rid of an unpleasant situation, right? But Judah had tried that route before. He'd lived haunted by the rash sin he'd committed in anger against his brother, and he almost did that again. But this time, something changed. This time, when Judah was shown his sin, instead of pushing forward in anger, he actually stopped, and he took a step back, and he looked at the situation. And what he saw was that actually he was the one who had wronged her. And he even confessed, she is more righteous than I. In this incredible reversal, Judah humbles himself to a younger woman, confessed his own very embarrassing sin, and as much as he was able, he made things right. Judah agreed to his obligation to take care of Tamar, and Judah and Tamar ended up having twin boys. And the births of Perez and Zerah was the beginning of the redemption of Judah. That he started on a journey of repentance by confessing he was wrong, confessing his sin, and letting the light of God into his darkness. And from that point on, a new life starts for Judah. And here's where our two stories start to come back together again. This is when the famine hit, and Judah goes with his brothers, and without recognizing Joseph, here's the demand that Benjamin be brought to Egypt. And we know that Judah knows what it's like to see his father lose a son, knowing it's his own fault, and nothing in Judah wanted to go through that again. But if they didn't bring Benjamin to Egypt, they were all going to die of starvation. The stakes are very high in this situation. But before Judah can do anything, Reuben, the oldest brother, takes a stab at convincing Jacob to send Benjamin with them. And Reuben steps forward and tells his father, let me take Benjamin, and I promise you, if I don't bring him back to you safe and sound, you can kill both my sons. What? What kind of incentive is that? If Jacob lost his son Benjamin, how in the world would killing two of his grandsons make it better? Shockingly, Jacob is not convinced by this offer. <laughs> Reuben clearly didn't get Jacob's heart at all. But then Judah speaks up in Genesis 43. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Thank you, Judah. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Judah's saying, I'm going to take full responsibility for my actions. No one else is going to pay for my mistakes. I want what you want. I want all of us to live, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that happens. And if I fail, I and I alone will bear the cost. Judah has grown up, and Jacob sees that. And he lets Benjamin go with Judah. And everything seems to go fairly well up until the moment when the servants find the cup that had been planted in Benjamin's bag, placed there to frame him. And Joseph fully expects to see all the brothers turn tail and run to save their own hides. 
But in this moment instead, Judah steps forward and he confesses. If Benjamin is guilty, we're all guilty, he says. And Joseph answers him, no, you're not. Just this boy, just Benjamin, the rest of you can go. And at that point, Judah throws himself to the ground in front of Joseph and literally begs him, take me. Take my life in his place. Take me, let him go. Let him go back to his father. Now, the last time Joseph had seen this man, Judah had been selling him out for 20 coins of silver. Now, Judah would give everything, his future, his freedom, his life, to save this innocent brother. He and he alone would take responsibility for the sins of the past. And at that moment, all the bitterness and anger and hatred and revenge that had been tearing up Joseph's heart just crumbled away like dust in the wind. Because this was the brother he'd always wanted. And it only took 40 years to get there. So Joseph can't help but confess to them who he is as he's crying. And these brothers in their shock hear him pour out blessings on all of them. That Judah's actions seem to have redeemed all of these brothers in Joseph's eyes. And Joseph sends for Jacob and brings the whole family to live together with him in Egypt. And they're reconciled all together as a family before Jacob dies. Now Joseph, whose one flaw had been lack of compassion, was now so aware that he was only where he was because of God's compassion and grace for him. Couldn't help it. He couldn't help but assure the brothers he's not going to act in revenge against them. He doesn't need to. God is in control, and God has cared for him, and because of that, he will care for them too. It's amazing grace that Joseph has learned humility and compassion through his long journey of trusting God through the good and the bad. And God has been working in Joseph's life in powerful ways in all of these years. But it wasn't God's work in Joseph that brought about this moment of reconciliation and redemption. It was the work God was doing in Judah. It took two very different lives being led by God to bring about this moment. And I think that's really important for us to notice. Because there are some times in our lives when we are in a very Joseph kind of place right? Where we are suffering some point in our life and we don't think we've done anything wrong or maybe it's even that we're suffering because we've chosen to do right that we find ourselves in a very broken, unfair world in suffering. And if we're in that place, we can either let those struggles make us bitter and separate us from hope or from God or we can let those moments become the greatest classrooms where God himself shows us his strength and his power and his hope to get us through. We need to hear this story of Joseph when we're in our dark times, our hard times, to know that God is faithful to be with us and that we can put our trust in him. We can be encouraged to keep on keeping on. Sometimes we have Joseph's stories. But sometimes our stories are more like Judah's, where we know that we've done wrong, we know we've gotten terribly off course, and we can't find our footing. And if we're in a time in our lives when we have shut the door of our own prisons, what we need in that moment more than anything is to confess, to come clean, to bring it all to the light of God, and to ask for his forgiveness so he can lead us in a brand new start. Because the truth is, both of these stories are our story. And our God will meet us in both 
of those places. God promised Abraham that through him all the world would be blessed. And if you're going to look at these two men in these stories, Joseph or Judah, which one would you have chosen to be the forefather of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ coming into the world? Hands down, you'd think it'd be Joseph, right? Joseph, who never wavered from trusting God for a moment through the bad times, through the good times, and saw God's faithfulness and blessed the world. Joseph is impressive. His faith is impressive. But God didn't use the line of Joseph to bring his son into the world. God chose Judah. Judah, the very imperfect fourth son of an unloved wife, who became a hero by his willingness to humble himself in order to save. And it was through the line of Judah, Tamar, and Perez that God sent Jesus into the world to save the broken ones, the guilty ones, the ones who make mistakes they don't know how to fix, who know they need a grace bigger than themselves, the ones who confess, God, it's my fault, I am to blame. This is the line God chooses to use to send the Messiah who rather than see you separated from God forever by sin, through the cross chose to surrender himself before the feet of all creation and say, take me instead. Take my life and let them go. Let them come home to you, Father. Because that's what Jesus did for you. Because that's what redeeming love looks like. Why did God choose Judah instead of Joseph? I think we admire Joseph. We admire his faith, but sometimes we can't really find ourselves in that story, right? We need a Savior who's willing to go low to meet us where we are. And that's who Jesus is. At the end of Genesis in chapter 49, before he dies, Jacob blesses his sons, the 12 tribes, and he honors his son Joseph with some very warm words. But of Judah, he says this, you are a lion's cub, Judah. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations will be his. Those words were written 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Where does the scepter rest? To answer that, we have to move from the first book of the Bible to the last, to Revelation 5. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation." The Lion of Judah humbles himself as a lamb to bring all of us long-lost sons and daughters back home to our Heavenly Father. Because as Jesus himself explains in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
You see, the story of Genesis is the story of how God works to bless a very messed up world. It's a story of God saving through Joseph and his faithfulness, and it's also a story of the redemption and reformation of Judah, a story for the imperfect ones, the ones who struggle and fail, to show us that God wants to use our faithfulness to him to bless the world, but that none of us are beyond God's power to redeem and restore that God's story through Jesus is meant to be our story, for all of us to be welcomed back into his love. For God so loved the world, so loved Jacob, so loved Joseph, so loved Judah, so loved you, that he would send the Lion of Judah to die and rise to rescue and restore you back to his own heart. As I was preparing for this sermon, I happened to be listening to a CD in the car that I hadn't listened to for years. And for those of you who are 18 and under, a CD is this round disc thing that people used to use to listen to music before iPhones. And these are the words of the song that I was listening to. We belong to the Lion of Judah. We are Abraham's seed. We belong to the Lord of creation and everything. So raise up his name on high. Raise up, you people of his pride. And before when I'd heard that song, there was always a little something in my heart that asked, are you proud of me, Lord? Have I done anything today to make you proud? But this time, when I heard those words, raise up, you people of his pride, it suddenly struck me that a pride is what you call a group of lions. That through Jesus' saving work for us, that is who we are. He died and rose to make us the people of his pride, that through his amazing grace, his amazing love for you and me, we are the pride of the lion of Judah. That's who we are. And when knowing our need for him, we can turn to him like Judah did. Like Judah, we are set free by the grace and restoration of our God to start again a new story, to live as the ones we're meant to be, because Jesus has made us the people of his pride. And just like Judah's action redeemed all of his brothers in Joseph's eyes, whether they deserved it or not, Jesus' actions redeem us before God. They welcome us back as family before God. And that has been God's plan since the book of Genesis to do for all of us, to welcome us home. So raise up, you people of his pride. Step into the new life that Jesus has opened up for you because the Lion of Judah has begun his reign. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, thank you for never giving up on us. And thank you for entering into this world, Lord, not through the perfectly faithful brother, but through the messed up one, to show us that none of us are beyond your ability to redeem us. And that it's not because of our goodness that you chose us, but because of yours. Thank you, Lord, that you make us the people of your pride. And help us to live out that truth out loud. Help us to follow your example in this world that needs your strength, Lord, that needs your compassion, that needs to see your self-giving love in us. So lead on, line of Judah. For it's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.